So it's November 10, 2021, uh, class in Hawaii over the internet, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 28, Paranjana Becomes a Woman in the Next Life, Text 65, which ends the chapter. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Mati Bhakti Vinata Swami Niti Namine Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Patarani Nirzesis and Yuvani Paskatiade Satarani Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Utah Padakamalam Shri Guru and Vaishnavamsha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sagana Raganatam Vitam Stam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamsha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Bahishman etad adyatman. Bahishman etad adyatman. Parokshena pradarshitam. Yat paroksha priyo devo. Yat paroksha priyo devo. Bhagavan vishvabhavanaha. Bhagavan vishvabhavanaha. Please chant. Parishman. O King Prachinibari. O King Prachinabari. Etat. Etat. This. This. Adyatman. Adyatman. Narration of self-realization. Narration of self-realization. Parochiena. Indirectly. Indirectly. Pradarshitam. Instructed. Instructed. Yet. Yet. Because. Because. Paroksha Priyaha. Paroksha Priyaha. Interesting by indirect description. Interesting by indirect description. Devaha. Devaha. The Supreme Lord. The Supreme Lord. Bhagavan. Bhagavan. The Personality of Godhead. Vishrabhavanaha, the cause of all causes. Srila Prabhupada's translation. Unmuted. Srila Prabhupada's translation. My dear King Prachinibarhi, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the cause of all causes, is celebrated to be known indirectly. Thus I have described the story of Paranjana to you. Actually it is, is it, actually it is an instruction for self-realization. Srila Prabhupada's purports. There are many similar stories in the Puranas for self-realization. As stated in the Vedas, Paroksha Priya Ivahi Devaha. There are many stories in the Puranas that are intended to interest ordinary men in transcendental subjects. But actually, these refer to real facts. They are not to be considered stories without a transcendental purpose. Some of them refer to real historical facts. One should be interested, however, in the real purport of the story. Indirect instruction is quickly understandable for a common man. Factually, the path of Bhakti Yoga is the path of hearing directly about the pastimes of the Personality of Godhead, Shavanam Kirtayan Vishnu, Srimad Bhagavatam 7.5. 23, that was Prahlad Maharaj instructing his father. But those who are not interested in hearing directly about the activities of the Lord or who cannot understand them can very effectively hear such stories and fables as this one narrated by Narayana. And then what we're not going to read is Srila Prabhupada defining a lot of the terms from this fable. Parishman etad etyatman parokshena pradarshitam yat paroksha priyo devo bhagavan vishrabhavanaha. My dear King Prachinabari, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the cause of all causes, is celebrated to be known indirectly. 
Thus I have described the story of Paranjana to you. Actually, it is an instruction for self-realization. So, this is a, a particularly interesting purport, and particularly relevant to those of us who write, who speak, who, who preach, who talk to people about Krishna uh, in any way, shape, or form. And that is what's real and what's not, what's true and what's not. So we're looking. We're going to look first at this concept of fiction and nonfiction, and what is actually fiction and what is actually nonfiction. And then, what about the audience? Prabhupada talks about those who can hear directly and those who have to hear uh, indirectly. And how to have everything be suitable? Uh, this this purport is very much connected to how we would create a real Krishna conscious society. If we were to achieve the seven purposes of ISKCON, how would this be manifested to bring everyone closer to the prime entity, Sri Krishna, and to publish books, magazines, etc. And of course, uh, if Prabhupada were with us today, I'm sure he would include in the seventh purpose all different kinds of media. So what's fiction and what's not fiction? I mean, all of us are interested in truth, yeah? <laughs> is, that, is that true? Is that a true story? It's a big selling point, right, for a movie or a book. Uh, this is a true story. Or if they can't manage that one, this is based upon a true story. And people are much more interested than if it's purely fiction, isn't it? We all want to know truth. Is it true? Is it actually true? Or is it made up? Or is it embellished? Hmm? Uh, but here, Srila Prabhupada talks about Actually, these refer to real facts. They are not considered stories without a transcendental purpose. Some of them refer to real historical facts. And then we are Prabhupada talking about this particular Purunjana story as a fable. Srila Prabhupada often used the word story as equivalent to fiction. So let's look at what we consider non-fiction. There can be so many historical narratives that are true in the sense that they really happened. Hmm? They are true in the sense that they really happened. But they may not have any kind of transcendental purpose. Right? They might not have any kind of transcendental purpose. Like people can... Some friend of mine was telling me they were watching some TV show about British royalty. And even if it's true, or even if it's based upon truth, does it have any kind of transcendental purpose? And the answer would most likely be no. I mean, when I was in Manipur, the devotees put on a drama that was about the history of Manipur. But the history of Manipur was very much intertwined with Gaudiya Vaishnav history. So it was fascinating. It was, a, it was you know, political and historical, and at the same time it was spiritual and religious. But most stories, you know, this is a true story of bravery in World War II. I mean, in our Gurukula, of course, we had to teach the children history and science and we had a whole series of videos. Uh, these were actual footage from World War II. So they were real historical. <laughs> they weren't even like based on a true story or dramatized true story. Uh, but they, weren't, they didn't have this higher purpose. They didn't have a transcendental... Of course, we had a purpose that we're trying to give the children an education they can use in Krishna's service. 
But the stories themselves were not created, the historical videos were not created themselves with a transcendental purpose. And so in one sense we can say that that is asat. Sat means that which is real, that which is eternal. So even if something is so-called true from a historical point of view, you know, or to have a biography of some, you know, movie star like Elizabeth Taylor or some criminal like Al Capone, and, you know, somebody's written some biography. You have some famous person, like, I don't know how many biographies have been written about Donald Trump, but a lot. <laughs> like, you know, every week or two, there's somebody coming out with a new book about him. So they're real in that they're about a historical personality and they're about events that transpired, but they're not real in the sense that they don't help anyone achieve the ultimate reality. Paramsattva, dimahi. It just the real sat, the real eternal. It doesn't. It doesn't help. Then, on the other hand, we have historical stories that do have a transcendental purpose. Like the Bhagavatam is one of the Puranas. Purana means old, and the Bhagavatam is primarily full of historical narrations, which our acharyas attest to being actual historical narrations. Now, that's in some cases a little stretch that the stories in the Bhagavatam that our acharyas are saying are historical facts, are indeed historical facts. Because there's a lot of stories in there that you're like, uh, really? <laughs> you know, you have Kardama Muni who makes a flying city for his wife, basically creates or manifests somehow thousands of Made servants. You have even the demons who made three flying cities. Uh, you have the one king who got pregnant, and the child was delivered uh, by by an incision. Uh, you know that that's possible, medically speaking. Like even a woman can have a pregnancy that attaches to the abdominal wall instead of within the uterus. So you had could have somebody implant a fertilized. Uh, embryo inside a man's abdomen, but in this case he just drank something. <laughs> he just drank this payasa and he became pregnant. So that's a little like, uh, wow. Or Gantari who gives birth to a lump of flesh that becomes a hundred children. Or these great demigoddesses, some of them give birth to snakes, some of them give birth to birds. And, you know, it, it's I mean, one of our arguments against evolution is that we do not have any practical experience of one species giving birth to a offspring that is not of the same species. That's one of the arguments. But it's in the Bhagavatam and the sixth canto, the daughters of Daksha, the 60 daughters of Daksha, uh, they uh, marry and they have these children in all these different species. Right? Kasyapa's wise, I don't know how many wives he has. 16, 13, 16. So his wives, you know, he has one wife who's the mother of Garuda and different birds, and another wife who's the mother of snakes. And, you know, it's funny, our, our godbrother Rasmandala Prabhu, he made this book about creation for children, and it was, it's pretty much just about these daughters of Daksha. And I remember when I was reading it thinking, that this isn't the Bhagavatam creation story I remember. I, you know, I'm thinking about Mahavishnu and Garbhadakashai Vishnu and Kshirdakashai Vishnu and the breathing of the universes and Lord Brahma. And, you know, this was not even, this was kind of part of the secondary creation with Daksha's daughters. And somehow I realized that when I had first read it in the Bhagavatam, I must have kind of skimmed it. <laughs> so, anyway, we have these, these stories that are a little difficult for the average person walking around to accept as historical fact. And you'll find even many uh, self-designating Hindus who will call them myths or mythology. The main reason I didn't like to buy Amar Chitrakata for our Gurukul was that they would label all these stories as myths. But they, they are far out, you know. There's some multi-headed person who flies around the universe on a peacock and an elephant-headed person who goes around the universe on a rat. 
I mean, well, <laughs> you know. Uh, but the Bhagavatam is telling us these are real historical facts and that they're given for a transcendental purpose. We also have, I mean, at least for myself, certain parts of the Bhagavatam that I, I just see. It's hard to understand how there's really a connection with Krishna, Purūrava and Urvasi as always, and Agnidra and Purvachiti, those two exchanges, you know, these really apparently uh, lusty exchanges uh, between a man and a woman. have always struck me as like, why is this in the Bhagavatam? And it's, it's long. Each section is, is several, you know, it's quite a few verses where there's, the man is having this detailed, uh, lusty descriptions of this woman's body and their relationship, and you're just like, ah. Or the ninth canto is full of very strange stories. You know, Sujumna, who changes from a male to a female to a, sometimes male, sometimes female. And, you know, the Harish Chandra, who has a child with the idea he's going to have his child as a human sacrifice, and he keeps evading the issue, and finally he purchases a child to use as a human sacrifice, and the demigods all go to the sacrifice. So anyway, there are all these stories that are, that are certainly very peculiar in the sense of they're really outside of our range of experience, and then there's a lot of stories that are peculiar in the sense that I thought the Bhagavatam throws out all kinds of a dharma. Why is this story here? What does this story have to do with transcendence? But our acharyas repeatedly state that everything in the Shastra, like the Bhagavad Purana, which is Amala Purana, the spotless Purana, indeed does have a transcendental purpose. And then we have stories like this fable, that it's not historical fact at all. I mean, the historical fact is that Narada was talking to King Bhari, but the story itself of Puranjana and his wife and all the snakes and the servants and the city and you know, all these things that, that, that didn't happen to actual historical people but it is illustrating a truth now if we were going to look at the truth value if we could set up some kind of a chart like we set up in logic what is the truth value of different statements like if P then Q and if not P then not Q and things like that if we were to set up a table of the the truth value of these different statements. We would find that fables, which are not historical facts about historical people, they are not about something actual that happened to particular people, but that are preaching transcendence, have a much higher truth value than historical narrations that have no transcendental purpose. So if we're going to take this Purunjana fable and compare it to some biography of, you know, Elizabeth Taylor or Donald Trump or something like that, so this fable has a much higher value of truth. But even within the historical narrations of the Bhagavatam, we can certainly say that some are more direct and some are more indirect. I mean, it's definitely... Some of the instructions are more direct and some are more indirect. I mean, we have some sections of the Bhagavatam that are just genealogical lists. And devotees often go through this, just usually no purports, and devotees often read through them very quickly without even talking about them. But there, there are large sections of the Bhagavatam that are simply uh, lists of names. Always reminds me what Prabhupada said after he left his family, and, you know, his parents had died, and he was thinking, you know, this family is now just a list of names. But that is in the Bhagavatam, and every word of the Bhagavatam is purific- purificatory. Yes, every word. On the one hand, uh, you can't really say, well, this section of the Bhagavatam is more than this section, but on the other hand, you can. We can say that the tenth canto, we can say the five Rasalila chapters are the, the jewel of the Bhagavatam. We can talk about the Chachar Sloki in the second canto as being the essence of the Bhagavatam. So uh, Jiva Goswami, he writes about, you know, 
There's the introductory verse, there's the concluding verse. The concluding verse isn't necessarily the end, by the way. He has a concluding verse in the second canto. The verse that gives you the essence of the work, the verse that gives you the most surprising statement of the work. You know, Srila Prabhupada was asked, if you had, if someone would just read one verse mm-hmm. of your writings that would exemplify what you teach, what would it be? And, and Prabhupada uh, picked the verse that Sanskrit, that Opulence should not be used for sense gratification. So even within the Bhagavatam, it's like that. You can say that some of the teachings are very indirect, some are slightly indirect, some are more direct, some are completely direct. When we use hermeneutics, we compare each statement to a concise statement of Gaudiya Siddhanta. So of course we have Bhaktivinoda Thakur, who did his Dasmula Tattva, and Bhaktivinoda Thakur's Dasmula Tattva is based almost entirely on Baladeva Vidyabhushan's similar work. Baladeva Vidyabhushan's work is based on the work of Vyastirta, the main disciple of Madhvacharya. So what are essential universal truths that are applicable to all people and all circumstances and all contexts? Hmm? And then are there, there are statements in the Bhagavatam that are restatements of that kind of truth. Then there are statements in the Bhagavatam and other scriptures that are contextually applied statements of universal truth. Then there are statements in the Bhagavatam that are supportive of eternal universal, non-contextual, trans-contextual truth. And then you have even statements that are opposed, or apparently opposed. Like Krishna telling his father in the Govardhan pastime, don't worship the gods, just worship work itself. So that is apparently in opposition. Right? Or, you know, when the demons are being quoted, <laughs> and these statements from the demons, statements from uh, Shishupal, statements from Hiranyakashipu, statements from Hiranyaksha. And often our acharyas will say, well, Mother Sarasvati is reinterpreting those statements. And they'll give you an interpretation of the statements that are opposite to the intention of the speaker. But if you take the literal intention of the speaker in the context of the narrative, those statements would be directly opposed. I'm going to cut off the head of Vishnu, for example. So those statements would be directly opposed. Uh, King Vena who's saying, you know, there's no God, worship me, I am God. So there's this continuum of direct and indirect, and there's continuum of to what extent eternal, a universal, and a trans-contextual truths are being taught. And that, that is true within the Bhagavad Gita, it's true within the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says to Arjuna, for those who have been honored, dishonor is worse than death. And then he also says, not too long after that, be a fight without consideration of uh, victory or defeat, fame and infamy, honor and dishonor. He says, don't care about fight without considering honor or dishonor. And this is after he said to him, you should fight to be honored because it will be worse to you than death to be dishonored. You have statements in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, go to a secluded place and be a full brahmachari and sit on deerskin and look at your nose and chant om and put the life air at the top of the head. And, you know, that's, that's not in the same category as always think of me and become my devotee, worship me and offer your obeisances to me. So these distinctions are very important to make. Uh, the Christians like to say, devil incite Shastra. The devil can cite scripture, and Prabhupada would say the same thing. You know, you can quote scripture to prove anything. Like we have these people that are very opposed to uh, women being gurus, and their their argument hinges almost entirely on one purport, where Prabhupada says that generally the Shiksha guru becomes the Diksha guru, but because Suniti was a woman and specifically drew his mother, she could be his Shiksha guru, but not his Diksha guru. And I know, I'm thinking, okay, well, we also have Prabhupada's statement in the ninth canto about Harish Chandra that buying and selling humans for any purpose and human sacrifices has been going on since the beginning of time. Because Harish Chandra, as I said, you know, he made this deal with Varuna that he was going to sacrifice his son. 
And then he wanted to renege on his deal. So he ended up getting really sick. And his son, in order to save his father, purchased a man with the idea of sacrificing him. I mean, talk about human trafficking. You're going to buy the human to kill them. <laughs> and the, all the demigods, they all came to this yagya. And that's all, Prabhupada's whole comment is that the buying of selling of human beings for any purpose and human sacrifice has been going on since time immemorial, going on for a very long time. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's what we're supposed to institute. It's not a, a prescription. It's not a directive. It's not an instruction. It's a description of something historical. And it certainly isn't a statement of eternal... Uh, transcontextual universal truth. It's not an application of universal truth. I mean, it's barely something that even points to it. (laughs) In one sense, we could say it's opposed to universal truth, where one should be not envious and be a kind friend to all living entities. One should be merciful to all living entities and so forth. You know, of course, it's astonishing. Harish Chandra is one of the most praised persons in Bhagavatam. So it's important that if we're going to understand scripture, that we understand these differences. And then, of course, within the scriptures, I was just hearing Prabhupada talk about how there's scriptures for people in the mode of goodness, people, scriptures for people in the mode of passion, scriptures for people in the mode of ignorance. The Vedic scriptures can apply to everyone. So we want to look at what is the intent. What is the intent? What is the purpose? What is the sankalpa? Is there a transcendental purpose and how is it being achieved? Is it being achieved fully directly, partially directly, indirectly, hardly at all, very, very indirectly? I mean, this is true when judging our own actions and the stories that we tell. You know, I can tell you a story of truth, but, you know, is it absolute truth? Is it objective truth? Or is it subjective truth? We had a, a situation here for the recent festivals, Govardhan Pujas, Govardhan Puja and uh, Prabhupada's Tirubhav, where I had arranged for some photographs of the Dom to be printed on fabric and made into backdrops for the deities here at the temple. But the fabric comes, just a piece of fabric, and it needs a pocket sewn at the top to put in a curtain rod, a, a, a rod pocket. So one of the devotees who makes outfits for the deities agreed to, to sew that on. I bought the fabric, I gave her the fabric. So I had bought 13 of them, and six of them were in the pujari room, finished, the other seven were not. And I had been writing her starting about three weeks before the festivals, you know, do you have the others, are they going to be here on time for the festival? And I wasn't getting any reply at all. And I, you know, maybe twice a week I'd write and say, do you know what's going on? And are they coming? And uh, finally, <laughs> as she wrote back and she said, I brought all of them to the temple weeks ago. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'm making a mistake. So I went back to the pujari room. I looked in every single closet and every single cabinet, upstairs, downstairs, counted everything, looked back at my original order, spent about two hours, and then I wrote back and I said, I've, I've looked everywhere, and I know I gave you 13, and there are six. We only have six. The other seven are missing. And uh, then she wrote back and she said, oh, I gave them to another devotee to bring to the temple. I'll, I'll get them and I'll bring them. So that was the facts. That was the story. I have the conversation in my in my chat window to prove it was all written that that was the story. But the the devotee called a mutual friend and was screaming and yelling that Ermila has accused me of being a thief. Ermila has accused me of stealing the backdrops. Uh, so that's her story, and from her perspective, she's telling a fact. She's not able to tease out that she is interpreting what I said rather than actually saying what I said. And we've all had this experience 
that somebody, you know, we have two people who tell the same story of the same events, and the stories are markedly different. This happens in courts of law all the time, that the different eyewitnesses will tell completely different stories. So, you know, what is a fact? And I, I, when I do some counseling work, one of the things I work with people is distinguish between objective facts and your stories about the facts. In fact, right after, right after this class, I have a logic class with our Gurukul High School students, and it's one of the things that we look at. What are the facts? And what stories are you telling about the facts? And there's a difference. Yeah? So what are the stories that we tell? about our lives, about other people's lives. What are the stories we tell in our own head? What are the stories we tell to our friends? And what's our intent? What's our purpose in the stories that we tell? You know, even if I'm sure that the stories that I tell are true, like this woman is convinced that I actually accused her of being a thief, which I didn't. I was asking her where the missing backdrops were. I wasn't accusing her of anything. So I didn't think that she would have stolen Dee Dee backdrops. I found that rather odd. But uh, what is the transcendental purpose? And I've, I've had to ask myself this over and over and over again. You know, if someone tells some story about me that, from my recollection, is not factual, and then I want to tell them the real story, what is my transcendental purpose? Do I just want to defend my ego? Do I want to say, yes, I'm a good person? Do I want to present myself as a victim that all the bad things that have happened to me are other people's faults and actually I'm a good person? You know, am I, am I asking people to love me and respect me and trust me and admire me? And that's why I'm telling these stories. Am I asking people to, you know, not trust other people? And that's why I'm telling you. Why am I telling these stories? What's my, what's my intent? What's my purpose? What's my sankalpa? And this can even be true when I'm telling direct stories about Krishna. Prabhupada talks about the professional reciters, which doesn't just mean that you give somebody dakshin, sacrifice without remuneration to the priest is in the mode of ignorance. So giving someone a donation for their, their teaching it doesn't make somebody a professional. In fact, students are supposed to give some kind of remunerations to their teachers. Hmm? So that's not the criteria. But if a person is doing it just as a job, well, I'm going to tell these stories about Krishna's Rasalila uh, just to make money. And they practice some dramatic affect. They can teach themselves to cry and so forth and so on. But they don't have a transcendental intent. Or they're speaking directly about Krishna but just so everyone can think, oh, you're so spiritual. <laughs> so some people are doing it just to make money. Some people are doing it for fame. And then someone could be telling a very simple fable. A very simple fable where it, they're not even telling you something that's historically factual. But their intent can be fully to glorify Krishna, as here Narada Muni is doing. And so on the one hand, yes, uh, the way to hell is paved with good intentions. Having good intentions is not sufficient. You can't go around murdering people with good intentions. You can't, you know, run a liquor shop with good intentions. So what we do is important, but just as important as what we do, equal important, is what are our intentions? What is our purpose? And the intention is a lot of what makes something true or not true. I really want us to think about this. That the, our intentions are a lot of what makes something true or not true. I was talking with a devotee the other day about what Prabhupada said to me when uh, my father said, well, about myself, I was with my youngest son, who was a baby at the time, will loving her son help her to love Krishna? And Prabhupada said, no, but loving Krishna will help her to love her son. So we find people campaigning for different social justice issues and this or that uh, in Krishna consciousness, supposedly in Krishna consciousness. Uh, but if I love living entities separately from Krishna, then there's no transcendental purpose. Whereas if I love Krishna first, there can be a transcendental purpose. And without a transcendental purpose, 
even the most historically accurate statements are untrue. And if I have a transcendental intent, even something that is pure fiction and pure fable is fully true. Hmm? Uh, it's, it will act in the service of truth. We, we find that uh, King Prachini Barishat, after hearing this fable, decides to surrender to Krishna. So much so that he renounces his kingdom before his sons, the Prachetas, have even returned from their austerity. So there are certainly also, not only in terms of the intent of the speaker, but in the in terms of the qualifications of the listener, the adhikar of the listener, there are those who can hear directly and, and those who can hear indirectly. And different people may be more or less open to hearing directly or indirectly different subjects at different times. So it's very hard to give direct instruction about somebody's faults. It's just a very difficult thing to do. To go to someone directly and say, you have this problem, and you have that problem, and you have this other problem, and you should hear the truth about it. Uh, first of all, often those are not truth with a capital T. They're my interpretation of the situation. Like this woman who didn't get the backdrops. Was she irresponsible? Probably not. <laughs> she just probably forgot. <laughs> uh, you know. But I, I could have that could be my my truth that she was irresponsible. You know, she has her truth about me that I was harassing her and, and accusing her unnecessarily. So if I go to her and I say, "You're an irresponsible person. You should be willing to hear the truth." First of all, that may not be the truth at all. <laughs> That's my interpretation of the truth. But even if we're sure that it is true, and often it's not, uh, people find it very hard to hear directly of their faults, generally speaking, some rare exceptions. And also to hear directly about Krishna. It's not something that everybody is qualified to hear. So many people will hear the Bhagavatam, and immediately, as I said earlier, rejected as mythology. How is some, you know, how is some lady giving birth to snakes? How is some man creating a flying city and thousands of maidservants for his wife? You know, it's just. How is some woman giving birth to a hundred children? So we have people who are they're just not qualified. Like the devotees asked Prabhupada. Shil Prabhupada, how do we preach about Ugrasena having four quadrillion bodyguards? And Prabhupada said, why are you preaching that portion? <laughs> he said, preach some other portion. <laughs> don't, don't tell that portion. Uh, so there are people who are, not, people who are not willing to hear that God is, is a person with a blackish complexion, playing a flute, taking care of cows, you know, and dancing with, with other men's wives in the middle of the night. So there are people who are not able to hear that. And then there are people who can hear it. And then, as I said, some people can hear some things directly and other things not directly. I may be able to hear directly at some times and not others. When a person, you know, their beloved child has just died is probably not the right time to just say, you know, well, it's all their karma. <laughs> yeah. uh, so there may be, may be times. And then there are those who basically can only hear indirectly ever. You know, they're just simply not amenable to anything direct. And it's, it's not a compromise to preach indirectly. It's good teaching to know, okay, is this a person who can hear directly with faith? Do they have the faith? Or do they only have the faith to hear indirectly? Do they have the faith to hear some things directly and some things indirectly? And it's for this reason that the Bhagavatam is full of both, direct and indirect instruction. Chaitanya Charitamrita is much more direct. It's not as much indirect. But we find both in the Bhagavad Gita and in the Bhagavatam, there's also indirect instruction. There's some, sometimes uh, instruction uh, through the behavior of the demons, through the behavior of what not to do and, and what is wrong. The bad example is, is put up. Yes. And so, and maybe for ourselves too. I mean, uh, sometimes uh, we're not able to hear something directly. Sometimes we have to hear something in the form of a fable. I had a, a lot of training as part of my training in counseling and therapy. 
I had a lot of training in metaphors and fables and how to create powerful metaphors and how the creation of metaphors and fables is often much more powerful at changing a person's values and behavior than is any kind of direct instruction or even any kind of historical fact. So if we really want to be transmitters of truth, first of all, we need to look at is this, in what sense am I speaking truth? Is it objective fact? Is it my interpretations of objective fact? Is it scripture? Is it scripture being applied in the proper way? Is it the part of scripture that's especially applicable to this situation? And what is my sankalpa? What is my intent? What is my purpose? And then what are the qualifications of the hearer? What are the qualifications of the hearer at this particular time? You know, it was it was interesting when this whole thing was going on with the backdrops. It was it was um, the day before Prabhupada's disappearance day. I was trying to get one of them here for Shiva Prabhupada's Tirubhav, and and I had written to one of the pujaris, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm, this is a bad time. I had written to her, please help me. She said, this is a bad time. I'm preparing for the festival. I can't hear this right now. You know, so what is a person who can normally hear direct truths? Maybe it's a bad time. Maybe it's not a good fit for that particular topic. So this it always boils down to the sankalpa, the intention, the purpose, the transcendental purpose. And if we're always guided by a transcendental purpose of wanting to please Krishna, a transcendental purpose of wanting to bring another person closer to Krishna, letting go of the purposes of simply feeding our own ego or simply having you know other people like us or other people respect us or other people saying that we're right or other people criticizing our enemies, <laughs> you know, that we need to let go of that because even so-called highest truth, when used for a selfish purpose, it's like milk touched by the lips of a serpent. The effect is, is not there. In fact, the effect can even be harmful. And a simple metaphor, when spoken by somebody with an intent only to love Krishna and for the intent of elevating someone, uh, can actually be the highest truth. So questions, comments, objections, additions, subtractions. Thank you for your very, very thoughtful class. I have one very, very brief thing to say. And... uh, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard that in some circumstances, professional therapists, if they want to uh, express a difficult truth, they'll speak it through a puppet. Is that true? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah. Thank you. That is definitely true. In fact, some of the leading therapists specifically work with puppets. As children one of the things that influenced me a lot and maybe all of us was um, something we learned through fables that famous Aesop's fables yes what incredible truths that we got from that that I think some we, we were giving class the other day somebody brought up the sour grapes mm. <laughs> um, there's just so many wonderful things that we've learned sort of you know indirectly through these metaphors or these fables that are incredibly powerful and, and very much influenced all of us. Yeah, Srila Prabhupada talks about Aesop's fables. He talks about uh, sour grapes. Or we have the Aesop's fable about the dog that wouldn't let the horses and the cows eat the hay even though he couldn't eat it himself. Um, the one about the rabbit who tricked the lion or maybe that's from the Panchatantra, you know, the rabbit who tricks the lion into going after his own reflection and, and so drowns the lion. Uh, Prabhupada tells some of these. There's actually a collection, there's an audio collection of uh, where devotees extracted stories like this out of Srila Prabhupada's lectures, and I have a separate folder of just these stories of Srila Prabhupada. Some of the books that we produce for children have these stories in them. We have the one about 
you know, the little bird swallowing the ocean. Now, it's debatable. Is that a historical fact or a fable? You know, um, for our children's book, we changed the sparrow to a gull uh, for phonetic purposes. And I had my god sister, Vishaka, say, you can't change it. It's a, it actually happened. And I know uh, Vidag Damadava Prabhu made a really lovely book on that story. And I always took it as a fable. But perhaps it did actually happen. Perhaps there was really a sparrow trying to dry up the ocean. Uh, but that is that kind of a story. Or the story of the woman whose sticks fell down. You know, we have that story of little sticks. The woman whose sticks fall down and she prays and God appears before her and she says, I want the sticks put back in my head. So again, you know, that I, I always took that as a fable. Um, was carrying, pulling these barges, mm. these he heavy boats up up against the current, and his prayer was that the was that the the, the bank of, of the of this canal be lined with mattresses. With mattresses, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You, you can have any benediction. You can have any benediction you want. You know, uh, please line the bank of the of the canal with mattresses. But that's so powerful. But when we hear that, it's so powerful. Why would someone so foolishly pray to God for something material? It just hearing these simple these simple metaphors uh, are just they're just so incredibly powerful. They are. And again, when I was uh, studying therapy and counseling, and we had. Uh, I guess we spent about 20 hours on studying the power of metaphors and how to create metaphors. And one of the reasons that they're very powerful is they completely circumvent the false ego. Even more so than a true story. Because, you know, I'm just reading about some fictional character and so I just, you know, or I'm reading about animals or, you know, rabbits talking or something, you know, frogs talking. And so I, I just consider that it's not really about me. You know, when, when we get direct instruction, then it's very much about me and all my false ego defenses go up. You know, well, I'm not really like that. Oh, this is this is how it happened from my point of view or, you know, right? But I don't need to do that if the story's about rabbits or frogs or turtles or something. Why do I need to do that? It was never about me in the first place. In fact, it was, it was never something real in the first place. And therefore, I just completely open up my awareness. And the, the story changes me. It's one of the most effective ways of changing people's values and behavior. And it's been used, the technique of fables and metaphors have been used since the beginning of time for that, for that purpose. And even the historical facts that are indirect... I mean, I was talking about the story of Sejumna and Ela. you know, the born a female, turns into a male, turns into a female, back and forth, male, female. What's the whole point of that? That's the point. But we're not these bodies. Yeah, I, I had a, a student come to me at 13, I may have talked about this before, she was very, very, very angry. Her family was pretty dysfunctional and she had been in difficult situations and she was basically like walking anger. <laughs> and she had no interest at all in Krishna consciousness, like zero, zippo. Somebody's got high static coming to so uh, during the morning program, I opened up the ninth canto Bhagavatam and just sat her down with that story. And after she read that story, she decided the Bhagavatam was pretty interesting. And she started chanting Hare Krishna. Eventually, she became initiated. But my way of breaking that through that anger was getting her to read this this story in the Bhagavatam. Um, Jai Jagadish, you have a lot of static. If you could mute. I am muted. I'm sorry. Is it, is it definitely me? I apologize, but looks I was like, muted. It looks like. All right. Uh, we have time probably for one more question. What's 
What story was it in the ninth canto? It's right at the beginning of the ninth canto. It's Elen Sejumna, the the transgender story. And can you pick that out for her specifically? I picked it out for her because it's just such a far out story. I mean, this is way before transgender was a word in the in the world. Uh, this was back in you know the nineties. But I just picked it out because it was just such, it's a very engaging story. It's a far out story, and it engaged her. It was interesting, and she's then she was like, "Oh, the Bhagavatam actually has stuff in it that's interesting." And then uh, what she started to do, we had all these uh, videos of the Mahabharat, this Indian made multi multi series, you know, of the Mahabharat, and she started watching one of those every day. But that was that was that story that was the segue to her watching Mahabharat every day and she completely changed. I mean completely. She went from this sullen, uncooperative, angry person to a happy chanting sixteen rounds devotees within a few months. But it was going that way. That's very satisfying to hear success stories like that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Yes. Okay, we've had talks, Irma Didi, about uh, stories, and one of the most powerful things about stories uh, that allows people to drop their defenses is they don't feel threatened. That's right. And there's there are also uh, there's also this element psychologically, and you have training like this, uh, where someone hearing a story the child will come out and there's this unconscious identification where, you know, they latch onto one of the characters in the story. And so that, that's what makes it work, you know, yes. is they, they're going through the that's right. experience yes. of the, you know, the character in the story. Yes. Actually, Rupa Goswami in the uh, fifth wave of the Southern Ocean of Bhakti Rasamri to Sindhu uh, has quite a few verses where he quotes Bharat Muni, and Jiva Goswami gives a lot of commentary in this regard, how uh, in the proper hearing of a story, whether we're reading a narrative, uh, hearing it, or watching it, is that we identify so closely with the character in the story that we actually feel their emotions. So, yeah, that is, that is also why it is very effective. Okay, thank you very much, Shula Prabhupada Ki Jai. Jai.